We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 16 today. And um, you know what? I'm going to ask us to come before the Lord right now. And would you really uh, do your best to submit your mind, your heart, your ears, your attention uh, to what the Lord has for us today in the Word? So let's just take a moment. Come before him. And Lord, we, um, we realize that as we study your word, there are sinful tendencies inside of us that don't want to hear the truth. And that, Lord, I pray that you would break through whatever barriers there are and that you would speak to us from your word. And Jesus, uh, we want to honor you by hearing your words and obeying them. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, here is the text, Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This week... The boys and I were uh, sitting in our, our uh, family room watching TV. There was nothing on. So you ever do that where you go through every channel? Nothing, 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 nothing. Except for, uh, who's the guy who sells the ShamWow? Vince, yeah. <laughs> He's on every channel now, you know. Um, but we came to the religious section of the TV channels. And... Um, Two things were on simultaneously. First of all, the Passion of the Christ was on. And whenever I uh, seem to turn that on, it's right at that section where they're flogging Jesus. The most brutal ten minutes any movie has ever put on the screen where um, they're just mercilessly flogging Jesus and he is in agony. And then uh, after that, they make him carry the cross, and he stumbles and falls. And it's, it's just horrible to watch what Jesus went through on our behalf, right? In our passage today, Jesus tells us to take up our cross, not, not so we earn our salvation. Let's make that clear. He earned our salvation. We take up our cross and are willing to follow him and even die for him, not out of earning anything, but to, to show our love for him. Jesus is glorified when we are willing to suffer for him, not because we're earning anything. But on one channel was Jesus being brutalized. The next channel was a prosperity channel preacher from Texas. I won't tell you who it was, though, but he did have a mullet, right? And he was preaching, 
Go ahead and uh, ask God to expand your life and your bank account and to bless you. And uh, that's not selfish. It's, it's uh, glorifying God because the more he expands you and your bank account, uh, the more glory he receives. So on the one channel, we have Jesus being brutalized in our reminder that we're to take up our cross. On the other channel is this prosperity preacher distorting everything. And I thought, what a picture of how far we have come in 2,000 years. Right? That is a false message. Right? We're going we're to get into that a little bit further this morning. Right? Now, um, there's a number of ways we can approach this text. We can go through it word by word and do cross-references and so forth. But here's what I did. I, as I meditated on this uh, scripture this week, um, I wrote down seven truths that just flow from Christ's words here. And that's how I'm going to handle it. Seven truths that can be derived from this text. And the first one is, is this. Either Jesus is the biggest egomaniac who's ever lived or else he's God. Right? Either he's a huge egomaniac or he really is God. You go, what do you mean? Well, look at what he says. Uh, you know, there are those from the liberal branch of Christianity who don't believe Jesus was God. He was a great moral teacher is what they will say. And uh, there's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis who says, no, no, no. If he was only a man, he would not be great because some of the things he says should only be said by God. For example, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me. Now, first of all, if he's just a prophet, what's he doing calling people to come after him? Isaiah didn't do that. Jeremiah didn't do that. But here Jesus is saying, you need to come after me. And if you want to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. When his disciples heard this, they knew what crucifixion was. They had seen the streets of Jerusalem lined with uh, people crucified. They knew that it was a shameful death. It was a painful death. It was humiliating. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I want you to take up your cross. That's not something an ordinary man says. That's something God would say. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? If you want to save your life, in other words, if you want to live for this world, you're saving your life by by just living for this world, you're going to lose your life and go to hell. But if you want to uh, throw your life away, lose your life for my sake, then you will be saved. That's not something ordinary men say. right? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Again, your eternal destiny depends on what you do with me. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Then look at this. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I'm going to return in the glory of, of the angels. Right? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels. This guy is claiming that the angels are his. 
and he will judge all mankind, and he will be the one who rewards mankind. Uh, you know, there's this famous quote by C.S. Lewis. In fact, let me quote it. And by the way, um, Caitlin the other day had a dance competition at Wheaton College, and we had always heard that they had a little C.S. Lewis museum, so um, being the sophisticated men that the Smith men are, we went to the, uh, it's called the Wade Center, and um, that's... <laughs> That's actually the wardrobe that C.S. Lewis grew up with um, when he wrote the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Josh is a little disappointed because there's no Narnia in there, all right? (laughs) There was no lion in there. And then this is C.S. Lewis's desk, which he wrote most of his books on. And then there's another writer. Do you know whose desk that is? Who knows? Who knows? You know? Yeah. Go ahead. Shout it out. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Uh, J.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings on that desk. Here's another famous person's desk. <laughs> the Coke Zero and the Chicago Bears Cup. Give it away. That's my desk. All right. <laughs> Thought I'd sneak that in there next to C.S. Lewis. All right. Um, listen to what he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So... Truth number one that flows from his words today uh, is that either he is the biggest egomaniac and just a man who ever lived, and you should reject him then. I don't know how liberal theologians can read the words of Jesus, say he's not God, and still want to follow him. Or you can say, this is God. All right, That's truth number one. Truth number two, salvation by faith alone and this call to radical discipleship are not mutually exclusive. Okay, what, what do I mean by that? Well, um, you know you're not saved by anything you do. You're saved by faith alone. Yet here he's saying, if you want to follow me, you need to be willing to die for me. Now, some theologians are so disturbed by how you fit those two truths together that the only way they can, can resolve it is they've come up with two levels, two tiers of Christianity. There's level one Christianity, which is uh, you, you believe in Jesus. You believe the creed. He died. He rose. I'm in. I have fire insurance. Um, but you don't have to be committed. You don't have to, to take up your cross. You're just kind of uh, a nominal Christian. You go to church. You're not that sold out for Jesus. That's level one, fire insurance. But then there's this second level of Christianity, a higher level, a call to discipleship. So they they would say level one is just salvation, ordinary, nominal Christianity. That's fine if you want to just live that way, but you're still saved. But level two is this call to discipleship, a, a radical level. You know, that's the Navy SEAL level of Christianity. And It's great if you want to become a Navy SEAL Christian, but if not, you're still going to heaven, don't worry. 
That is a damning theology. It's the theology that most American Christians have bought into. Well, I don't want to be a Navy SEAL. I'll just be a nominal one with fire insurance, and they will wake up in hell. A level one Christian is what I call a deceived hellbound sinner. Okay? And by the way, um, this is not calling you to level two Christianity because in the middle of it, heaven and hell is at stake. Look at what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The salvation of your soul is at stake here. If if this was just a call to level two Christianity, why bring in eternal damnation and eternal salvation? So the whole idea that you can go to camp when you're 12, pray a prayer, live a nominal Christian life, and go to heaven... That's, that's the, the uh, mentality that many churchgoers have. Your eternal salvation depends on what you do with Jesus. Okay? Now, um, the question is, though, I thought we were saved by faith alone. This, is this adding works to the gospel? No, no, no. No, no, no. Salvation, I should say justification, you being declared right before God, is by faith alone and nothing you can do. Not by works, not by martyrdom, not by sacrifice, not by tithing. The only basis you have for acceptance before God is Jesus' perfect life and his death for you. And when you trust in him, truly trust in him, that's what you are given. You are given his perfect record. Okay? I will die for that truth. In fact, I spent most of my week defending that truth against others, while this Sunday I'm going to hold to that, but I'm going to say, wait a minute, you're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Right? True faith is not just an intellectual thing where you go, oh, I believe the creed, I'm in. True faith is a supernaturally produced thing where God changes your heart. He gives you a new heart. You are born again. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And if you're born again and you have a new heart, you will radically follow Jesus. Now, theologians talk about, they use language like this, there are certain theological issues that must be distinguished but can never be separated. Faith and works must be distinguished. You are saved by faith alone, but you really cannot in real life separate true faith from a changed life. Okay? Now, there are times in Scripture where Scripture is delineating. It's being very precise. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. You are justified by faith alone, not by works. There are times specific, uh, Scripture being very specific. It's being theological. Then there are times when 
the scripture writer steps back and he's looking at the whole Christian life. He's not being precise. He's just describing what the Christian life should look like. It should look like this. True faith in Christ involves a supernaturally redeemed heart. That heart doesn't just intellectually believe in Jesus. It loves Jesus. It desires to obey Jesus. It is willing to die for Jesus. Has your heart been changed? Are you a level one Christian? I hate to ruin your 4th of July weekend, but you've got something to worry about. Your eternal salvation. Truth number three. Jesus calls true disciples to treasure him more than anything this life has to offer, including life itself. Okay, again, whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, if you say, I'm not going to become one of those wacko Christians sold out for Jesus, it'll ruin my fun. I want to live for the, the pleasures of this world. Well, if you want to save your life, live for the things of this world, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever says, I've already tried that. It's empty. And I'm a sinner. And I throw my life away trusting Jesus. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's not just calling for intellectual belief. He's calling for you to love him more than anything this world has to offer, including life itself. Now, in this room right now, you're either one of two kinds of people. You are those who hear what I just said and you go, what? You see, the the unbeliever can't understand this. The unbeliever scoffs at this. The unbeliever says, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard on a 4th of July weekend. I got plans. The unbeliever thinks that truly following Christ is a wasted life, a joyless life. But that is such a short-sighted view. It's such a juvenile view. I heard a preacher once talk about the fact he brought his family uh, to a a big theme park with the roller coasters and all the rides and everything. Uh, But at the entrance, before they would go in, there was a little toddler park with uh, swings and a sandbox. And they had a little toddler with them. And the little toddler was playing in the sandbox and on the little toys. And it was time to go in. And the little toddler didn't want to leave. He didn't want to go to big park land. He just, he loved toddler land. Okay? And they tried to convince him that it's even better inside. But no, what, why give up what you know? Toddler land. And those of you who say, I'm not going to follow Christ. What you're saying is, I want to live in toddler land. I'm not going to Big Park. Toddler land is where it's at. Okay? 
Again, C.S. Lewis morning. We get a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Those who say, I'm not going to follow Christ, I'm going to live life. You are far too easily pleased with things that can never satisfy. Jesus told a parable. It's my favorite little parable. It says, the kingdom of heaven, and when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, you could, you could literally say, finding Jesus is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, finding Jesus is like this, is like a treasure hidden in a field. All right, so let's say you're, a, yeah, you're working your job, and your job is to go dig a ditch in somebody's yard. Somebody's field. There's not even a house on it. And you dig in, and you dig in. Boom! You hit something. You dig around it, and you pull out this box, and you open it, and it's full of gold coins. $15 million of gold coins. What does he do? Uh, it's like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, and, oh, covered up. Put it back. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. He, he sells his house. He sells his Toyota. He sells his baseball card collection. And he gathers $200,000 and he buys that field. And now he's got real treasure. Some of you are worried about the ethics of the parable. Don't worry about the ethics of the parable. In essence, you're trading in your worthless life for true treasure. Okay? So what is this joy? He does it in joy. What is this joy that possesses a person to give up all he has for Christ? Well, here's what happens. At some point, God begins to work on you, and he opens your eyes to the fact that you are a sinner, and your sin has separated you from God. And there is no true living, there is no true joy apart from a relationship with God. And being right with Him becomes more valuable to you than money and the pleasures of sin and your reputation and the toys that you can accumulate and you go, how can I possibly be made right with him? And then you hear about the cross of Jesus where he paid the price for your sin. And he says, come to me. And you drop everything. And you trade it in for his treasure. He is your inheritance. You're happy to trade in your life for his. Now, Two things keep people away from the cross. Two things. Right? Remember the parable of the prodigal son? It should be the parable of the prodigal sons. Because the first son, he said, Dad, give me my inheritance. Drop dead. I hate you. 
And he goes off and he is going to live for the pleasures of this world. The first thing that keeps a person away uh, from, from a relationship with God and coming to the cross is, I'm choosing toddler land over Christ. Right? Sin. But the second brother, he was at home, but he never really knew his dad. He misunderstood his dad. And he had this idea that he had earned everything. He's a Pharisee. He is self-righteous. The second thing that keeps you away from the cross is self-righteousness. I don't need the cross. I'm good enough on my own. So, if you are not a believer this morning, let's boil it down to this. Either you are pursuing the world, and that's keeping you from Christ, or you are self-righteous, smug in your self-righteousness, thinking you don't need this religion thing. Which one is it? Jesus is calling you to wake up and see that he is more valuable than anything this world has to offer, even more valuable than life itself. Let me give you a fourth truth. This passage exposes the lie of the prosperity gospel and the suburban gospel. Okay, What's the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel is this. Add Jesus to your life, kind of like a supplement. You take your vitamin C, you take your vitamin B, you take your, uh, I don't know, whatever food supplements, and it... It adds to your life. Well, you take Jesus as a supplement, and he will make you materially wealthy, physically healthy, and emotionally happy. That's the gospel. Jesus is your magic genie to give you everything you want. Well, if that's the message, who couldn't grow a church to fill a stadium? How hard is that? It's the magic genie gospel. It's a gospel that says, invite Jesus into your life, but there's no call to repentance, no conviction of sin, no call to take up your cross and die. It promises health, wealth, and happiness. And you know what? The great thing is, if you're the preacher of this kind of a gospel, everybody loves you. Wow. If, if, you know, some people think that planting a church is just all about numbers. They think that um, the, the measure of success is numbers. Really? Here's what Jesus says about those who preach in such a way that everybody's happy with them. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. You are a false prophet if that's your message, if everybody's happy with you, if there's no call to repentance, if there's no call to take up your cross. Now, um, in fact... There's never a reference to this verse. I wonder if uh, the prosperity guys have ever preached on this verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross with the shame and the rejection and the pain, take up his cross and follow 
me. You'll never hear that preached. But what's scary is that the suburban gospel is maybe worse than the prosperity gospel. I mean, just really gullible people swallow the prosperity gospel. But the suburban gospel is a little more refined because they preach right out of the Bible. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, church, they preach right out of the Bible. So what? You can spin anything. Are they doing it, though, in the tone that the Bible presents it in? You see, in the suburban gospel, here's how you know if you're in a suburban gospel church. I don't mean just churches in the suburbs. I mean those whose main goal is to supplement your life with Jesus so you can go on living a comfortable suburban life. Again, there's, there's no, no radical call to repentance. There's no call to die for Jesus. It's basically here we're preaching through the Bible to give you principles to bless your life so you can live the American dream. And millions of people comfortably exist in churches like that. Now, when you hear the true gospel and you truly believe in Jesus, you can't comfortably exist in a church like that anymore. It becomes repulsive to you. Because what it is, is a holding ground for hell. Where people who have never been born again can go and just feel good, but never be called to truly follow Jesus. Uh, Piper, have I ever talked about this? John Piper guy? Right. Piper talks about the difference between having a vacation mentality, you're living your Christian life with a vacation mentality, versus a wartime mentality. He talks about the Queen Mary. When the Queen Mary was a vacation ship, uh, when you would sit down for dinner, there would be dozens of pieces of china and saucers and cups and plates and salad bowls and silver. But when it was converted into a warship, all the china was replaced with a tin tray with the preparations in it. You put your beans in one and you put your mashed potatoes in another and you got your spork, you know. And the bunks, when it was a... Uh, a vacation ship, the bunks were too high when it was a, a, a warship. I think they converted it to like six or seven high. You allocate your resources differently in times of war. Right? Let me ask you this. When you picture going to church, are you going on vacation ship or are you going on the warship? Most suburban Christians see Christianity as vacation ship. And Jesus in this passage is calling you to be a Navy SEAL, to die for the mission. I'm finishing up the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer 
was a pastor in Germany when Hitler was rising. He was one of the few who spoke up and said, this is wrong. The rest just kind of said, ah, let's get along to get along to get along. And uh, Bonhoeffer, the book is called uh, Pastor, Spy, Martyr. Because he was in on the plot to kill Hitler. You go, well, how does that merge? How do you you merge pastor spy? I wish I could tell you, but I can't, right? (laughs) Um, Bonhoeffer in jail wrote this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls you, he calls you to come and die. Now, many people say, well, I guess if it boiled down to that, I would die for him. So you'll die for him, but you won't get baptized for him? You'll die for him, will you tithe for him? You'll die for him, but will you witness to everybody God brings in your life for him? You'll die for him, but will you serve him, not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient? This passage exposes the lie of the prosperity gospel and the suburban gospel. Can I call you to not support the suburban gospel anymore? But all my friend, it's Jesus you're following. Number five. Number five. To preach this passage, one must believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. What's the sovereignty of God? That God is in control of everything. Because right? over, over the years, I've had good-hearted people want to give me advice. They'll say, Pastor, if you preach like this, you're never going to grow the church. So what are you saying? You're saying we need to nice it up a bit. We need to sell it. We need to spin it. Right? Because this kind of preaching scares people away. Well, yes, it does. It does. But you know what else it does? It calls true disciples out. Are, are we just about crowds? Or what, what's the Great Commission? Have a bunch of people? Or is it to make disciples? What, 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 is, your, what is your vision for the church? Is it to make disciples or just a big parking lot? Oh, what would be great is a big parking lot full of true disciples. Wouldn't that be great? Okay. Now, um, interesting, Jesus says virtually the same words in another passage in Luke's gospel. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and He turned and said to them, now right here, the church growth experts would come in and say, now Jesus, whatever you say, don't lose them. Don't say anything to scare them away. So he turns to the crowds and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Oh, Jesus, what are you doing? You're going to lose the crowd. He was purposely losing the crowd. Are you on the same page as Jesus, or do you have some other view for the church? Some man-made marketing view of the church. Now, somebody says, but, but what if you scare away those who are really interested? That's impossible. That's impossible. The truly interested want to hear what Jesus has to say and will follow him. Let me ask you this. Here's, here's where it boils down. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation? Or do you believe that the salvation of people is really up to how we do church, how we do music, how clever the preacher is? Really, this, it boils down to this. Do you believe that God is sovereignly drawing people to Christ, or do you believe that it's up to our cleverness, our technique? Let me show you a couple verses. Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jewish people. Some believe, but most don't. And he says, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Notice, he doesn't say, you are not part of my flock because you don't believe. Now, that's true. If you're not a believer, you're not part of the flock. But he's talking to a bunch of unbelievers, and he's given the reason they don't believe. They're not part of his flock. In other words, there's a true flock, and he's calling them out. Right? Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Amongst all the unbelieving sheep, I have a flock that I'm calling out. Well, how will they know? They know my voice, and they will come out and follow me. Even when he preaches the hard things, like take up your cross. And follow me. The marketing guys, the sales guys say, no, no, no. You got to kind of bring them along and, and you got to be subtle and you got to be. Jesus wasn't subtle. He proclaimed the truth and his sheep followed him. The rest said, I don't need this. And that's okay. That's okay. Was it John MacArthur said, today's gospel is preached in such a weak way that the non-elect don't even know to reject it. Figure that one out, okay. Let me give you another one here. Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch. He preaches to the Gentiles, and it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It does not say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life, but as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, the preaching of the gospel 
draws those who are appointed to believe. Now you go, I don't like that predestination stuff. What are you going to do? Cut it out of your Bible? Are you going to be like many churches who just never touch it? Here's what it allows you to do. It allows the preacher to preach with integrity. He doesn't have to twist and spin and craft a message to tickle ears. He can just preach the truth and the people know they're going to get the truth week after week after week and it's going to draw the sheep out. Now some people go, I can't handle that. I've never heard of this. I don't like it. You don't like Christianity then. Right? So, this passage requires you, if you're going to preach this passage, it requires you to believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. That hard truth can be preached and the true believers will still follow Christ. In fact, they'll even be drawn to him more. Okay, Number six. This passage calls for humble resolve, not arrogant bravado. Okay. Now, what I don't want you to do is go, oh, good, got to die for Jesus, I'm in. No problem. Do you remember a guy who told Jesus he would never deny him and he would die for him? Peter? Yeah, Jesus, what do you mean somebody's going to deny you? I'll go to death. I'll die for you. Jesus says, you know, Peter, um, you're going to deny me three times tonight. Not me. A few hours later, before the rooster crows, or while the rooster crows, Peter has denied that he even knows Jesus. So please don't say, okay, I'm on board here. I can do this. As I read this passage, I go, he's calling me to die for him. And I know in my flesh, I, I don't enjoy pain. I like people to like me to a degree. I will fail in my own flesh, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to entrust my ability to die for him to his grace. Okay? There's a very comforting passage. Jesus is talking about end times in Matthew 24. And he says, actually this is Matthew 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So sitting around worrying, oh, what am I going to say when I'm on trial before the Antichrist? Um, Don't worry. God will give you the grace necessary And the words to say and implied, he will give you the grace to die if you need to. Okay? Final message, or final point. This passage doesn't teach salvation by sacrifice. But it does teach that our sacrifice for Christ will be rewarded by him. Okay? You are not saved by dying for him. But if you die for him, if you endure hardship for him, if you endure persecution for him, 
you will be rewarded. He gives you the grace to do all those things, and then on top of that, you are rewarded. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You go, why throw in my life and and give up all the fun of sin and follow Jesus and endure persecution? Because when he returns, he will not forget what you have endured for his name. He will reward you. I'm a interesting pastor. If you go down in my office, I don't have nice, serene pictures of Jesus. I have a picture of William Wallace on my wall. Braveheart. And uh, I love that scene in Braveheart where uh, Mel Gibson... He's on his horse, and he's called all these ragtag Scottish soldiers to fight the British. The British are over there. They've got, you know, metal helmets and spears and arrows and horses, thoroughbreds. And and the the Scottish are this ragtag bunch of guys, no teeth, with braided pigtails, (laughs) dresses. (laughs) Sorry to offend any Scottish amongst us, right? So he gathers the Scottish troops, and there's the British ready to fight. And he goes, I am am William Wallace. I don't know if I can get through this without turning into a southerner. but (laughs) And he says, I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with freedom? Will you fight? And some guy with pigtails goes, no, we will run and we will live. And then his famous speech, he goes, ah, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while and dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that, from one, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. And then they go beat the British. Right? So let me ask you this. Dying on your deathbed many years from now, would you be willing to trade it all in to trade in all your days of playing it safe for one chance to come back and take up your cross and follow him and serve him and die for him. Because they may take your life, but they can never take your eternal life. Amen?